We've seen an amazing amount of progress over the last 100 years and certainly in the last 20 and 10 years. I believe that our ultimate goal is to create a cancer-free world. And from what I've seen in this period of time, it's possible we may get there. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast, and today our guest is Dave Cohn. Dave is the chief medical officer of the James Cancer Hospital, and he's also a bit of an oncology historian, which I think it's a real term, or at least it should be. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the history of cancer treatment. Dave will walk us through uh, the advances in cancer treatment and fill us in on some of the exciting new advances that are saving more and more lives every year. Welcome back to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. And let's start off. How far back does cancer go? How far back did people realize that this was a disease that was killing people? Cancer has been around for a really long time, probably as long as we've been around. And in fact, I think that the earliest documentation of cancer was more than 2,000 years ago. Wow. And so individuals were, you know, in their writings, recognizing that there were these diseases that were, that were not curable, that were killing people. And that's what we know today as cancer. So when did they first sort of or get an idea of what to do or in these really kind of rudimentary ways, what did they do uh, hundreds or even a thousand or more years ago? Yeah. So that's if you think about where we are today and the technologies we have and the medical advances that have been made, put yourself back a thousand years ago and try to figure out what exactly would happen. There weren't a lot of options that were available. Keeping in mind that anesthetic techniques weren't around until the mid 1800s. Uh, keeping in mind that our knowledge of antibiotics and how to prevent infection were not around as well, and keeping in mind that the ability to even have a surgery, if not recover from it, were essentially non-existent. It must have been pretty barbaric. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we talk a lot about using leeches, which are still a medical technology that we do use, but, you know, there were bloodletting and leeches as major medical treatments, as the biggest advances uh, in the early days of medieval medicine, and we certainly have come a long way. So give us a sense of when sort of the modern era or even quasi-modern era of of surgery and cancer surgery came about. Yeah, so cancer surgery advancement really paralleled the identification of anesthetic techniques or using anesthesia. So in the days before anesthesia were available, uh, it was probably a big challenge to try to operate on a patient because that would not have been a good option for the patient nor for the surgeon. So with the anesthetic techniques that were developed in the 1800s, that really became the era of surgery as a major component for cancer treatment. And there have been, you know, again, some initial attempts at surgery, but until the anesthetic techniques really became more modernized, that really didn't exist as a true science. What would they even do when, for surgery before anesthetics? You like just like that old cliche of biting on a bullet? or I think that that's probably what it was. Um, you know, again, there are certain medications that could be used that could sedate individuals. and um, Alcohol? Yeah, alcohol is one of them. Yeah. Uh, and narcotics were available okay. at certain capacities as well. But again, not until you can do a surgery safely and complete it uh, could you actually use that as a major component of cancer therapy. And then they probably had to develop blood transfusions, right? Yeah, and that came much yeah. later, actually. Oh, oh that wasn't... Oh, okay. Yeah, so blood transfusions that were safe um, didn't exist until much later than that point in time. There were experiments with blood transfusion. But again, uh, with surgery, you have to have all the other components that go along with it. And so thinking of, again, where we are today and all of the pieces that go into surgery, which is the anesthetics, 
the excellence in nursing, the surgical techniques themselves, the transfusions, the antibiotics. It was only once that entire cadre of support for the patient that came to be could surgery even be considered to be utilized as a major component of cancer therapy. So I've heard that's been called, like from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s, has been called the, the century of surgery, and that's when sort of the modern surgical techniques were developed. That's definitely true that that's when surgical techniques were developed. From a modern standpoint, I think that, you know, eras today that were performing surgery are very different than they were in the mid-1800s and early 1900s. The basic principle back then was to remove the cancerous body part and the surrounding normal tissues around it. The reason why that was taken is because of the fact that the ability to use effective radiation and chemotherapy didn't always exist. Yeah. So if you look at breast cancer as an example, I think this is really a great way to think about how treatment has changed as a whole. There used to be something called the radical mastectomy, where the entire breast tissue, the muscles around it, even some of the ribs were removed to try to eliminate a cancer. That operation is rarely done today. And the reason for that is that we've gone away from the radical operations to less radical, which means taking out the tumor, sparing most of the normal tissue as much as you can, and then using the other treatments of radiation and chemotherapy to minimize the chance of reoccurrence in that area. And the reason why that advent was really, really critical is that radical surgery was very disfiguring and also debilitating. It led to changes in the ability to use one's arm, for example. The chance of having swelling in the arm as a result of the surgery was enormous. And the disfigurement, the physical appearance of the body was very, very different after radical surgery. Plus, it probably didn't work as well until they developed radiation and chemo. That's definitely In the true. sense of that they, the cancer could spread or they didn't get it all, right? That's exactly right. So when you look at the rates of cure... Today, you know, about two out of three people that are diagnosed with cancer are living more than five years, whereas even in the 1970s, that number was only one out of two or 50%. Think about it again, back in the early 1900s, it was probably pretty rare to have somebody who was cured of cancer. Um, But again, if they were cured, very often that was at the expense of their ability to function and of their physical appearance as well. And so you mentioned the early 1900s, and that's when radiation, I think, right? That's when radiation kind of came into being and was used as a, as a treatment technique. And after surgical advances, radiation is sort of the second big advance. That's exactly right. And so there's a lot of work in radiation. So thinking about radiation as a form of x-rays, there was a lot of work that was done looking at radiation for detection of things. You know, our traditional using chest x-rays, for example, of taking a picture of the inside of someone's body, looking at lung tissue and looking at bones, using different techniques of that x-ray at a higher dose or a different level and using different physics, basically you can use that for treatment. And so the change from diagnostic radiology to detect things into therapeutic radiology to treat things is really one of the major advances in cancer treatment as it relates to radiation therapy, what we use today. So that's kind of amazing. So at first... Um, they discovered that we can use these x-rays and take pictures inside the body. Then they made the leap that we can use it to uh, destroy cancer cells. That's exactly right. So from diagnosis to treatment. So that's a really important transition in the medical history is that now being able to leverage the physics of of the x-rays for treatment of cancer. And, And I'm guessing that the initial radiation treatment for cancer compared to today's would be sort of the same as surgery, where it was much cruder and probably not as refined and and 
and as good as it is today. That's exactly right. And so a number of patients that we see in the clinic might come in and say, I don't want to have radiation because my grandmother right. had radiation yeah. when she had her cancer and she had burns on her body and things didn't go well and she ended up dying of complications. The chance of that happening today is exceptionally small. So the technology has advanced just like it did in surgery. So now radiation is treating smaller volumes, meaning that the fields that they use or the amount of tissue that's radiated is smaller. So you spare more normal tissue, and then you deliver doses just to the tumor, sparing everything else that's outside of that field itself. So it's much safer and it's more effective as well. I've, I've seen in the James Hell for certain types of cancer, they sort of create like a, a, a computer program, but also like a a cast of some sort that you lie into so you the person the patient doesn't even move and they can direct the beams to like super well-defined areas and that's exactly the principle of of specific patient directed care so the personalized medicine extends to radiation therapy itself so the general principle is that you know with the goal of radiating just the cancer sparing the normal tissues which is going to increase the chance of cure and minimize the chance of side effects that's done through you know, modern radiation technologies, using x-rays themselves, not for treatment, but to help the treatment planning. So if you take a picture of where the cancer is in the patient, and then you shape the fields of radiation to really just outline the tumor, that's how you get those great results. And using the, the molds of the patient to really make sure that you're most effectively delivering that dose is, is the next step. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it, that x-ray technology, which was the first scans where you could first detect the cancers in the body, which are now have been replaced by MRIs and CT scans that are so much more precise. But that technology that allowed you and others to to look at the, the tumors and then treat them now has advanced to the stage that you can really pinpoint the exact locations and, and treat accordingly. Yeah, so the combination of diagnostic and therapeutic radiation yeah. is really the key to today's modern radiation technologies. So those are the so surgical advances and now radiation advances working together were big jumps. So what was next? So the next on our list is chemotherapy. And it's really important to think about what chemotherapy is. If you break that word down, chemo means chemical and therapy means treatment. So it's using a chemical to treat, in this case, cancer. And chemotherapy really came into the you know, major modern technology for cancer treatment in the 1940s. And this is a, an amazing story that results out of something that happened during World War II when military personnel were exposed to something called mustard gas during military action. And what they were found is that in their bone marrow, their cells, they actually had some major changes. And so this eventually led a scientist in Boston to recognize that this is a way that you can actually kill certain cells in the body and cancer in this specific situation. Wow. That, so the horribleness, mustard gas killed like thousands, if not millions of, of people in, in these wars. And then they, scientists somehow figured out that they can use it. To, to save lives. Well, I think that the, the leap was that it wasn't necessarily the nitrogen mustard that was used to treat patients, but it was other chemicals that might be related to it or that functioned similarly okay. that were very so effective at killing off the cancer cells. So they refined the mustard gas and found what the properties in it that could kill cells. Absolutely. And so um, that was a, you know, basically what's called a shotgun approach, which is that it kills cells in general. The way that chemotherapy works is it kills the cells that divide most quickly. And so when you think about the side effects that we all consider when we think about traditional chemotherapy, it might be hair loss, it might be mouth sores, it could be nausea as well. 
And a lot of these side effects are because the hair cells, the uh, cells on the inside of the mouth, um, and the cells of the inside of the intestines turn over much faster than other cells. They're the fastest dividing cells. And so cancer also is a fast dividing cell. So the benefit is you kill the fast dividing cancer cells. The downside is you have the traditional side effects of chemotherapy. Wow. So how do, so from this start in the, the 1940s to the, our sort of modern age of chemotherapy, what, again, it seems like everything you start off with this, with these therapies that have all these horrible side effects and are not very well refined. So what happened to refine and improve chemotherapy? Well, there was a big motivation to refine and improve it because about 10 years after that in the mid 1950s, it was recognized that a new type of chemotherapy that was developed actually cured patients who had metastatic or spread cancer. And that's something that wasn't seen very often. And so I think that with that recognition that chemotherapy can be powerful enough to cure a patient who traditionally had a very bad prognosis, all of a sudden people said, this is a critically important component of cancer treatment. And that really led to the takeoff of multiple different types of chemotherapy um, that are specific to different types of cancers as well. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Dave to talk about some of the more modern advances in cancer treatment. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At the James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Dave Cohn, the Chief Medical Officer of the James, and we're talking a little bit about the advances, the historical advances in cancer treatment. And Dave, we talked about chemotherapy and kind of fill us in on how chemotherapy improved and what came next. So there's been an amazing progress, amount of progress in chemotherapy over the last 20 years. And a lot of this paralleled our knowledge of the genetics of cancer. And so if I could take a step back for a second, we used to think of cancer as a disease that arose in someone's body, and you would treat that cancer with a specific drug that seems to work in that disease. When we began looking at the DNA, which is the building blocks of what makes us human, basically... We also looked at the building blocks of cancer itself. And so if you look at the DNA of the cancer, which is what comprises its genetics, you can then begin to understand that there are specific patterns of genetic changes that occur in many different types of cancer. And so while one patient might have a lung cancer and another patient might have breast cancer, historically they were treated with very different drugs, but sometimes there's the same genetic changes called mutations that are present in the exact uh, areas in a breast cancer and a lung cancer. And now those two different types of cancer might be treated with the same drug that targets that specific genetic or DNA change. And that's called targeted therapies. When did that come about where DNA sequencing, roughly, when did that come about where DNA sequencing allowed uh, physicians like yourself to sort of know what you just said? Well, there's a huge push that was uh, put forth by the National Cancer Institute called uh, the Cancer Genome Atlas, TCGA. And so that began to define what the genetics of our human bodies are and therefore what is different in a cancer. And that started about uh, 15 years ago. Wow, and that was just a huge breakthrough. That's an enormous breakthrough because that really enhanced our understanding of the the genetic basis of cancer. And when that happened, then 
there is a huge explosion of investigation of new types of treatments that might specifically target those genetic changes in different types of cancers. So once you can identify a mutation, then you can target it. That's exactly right. What would be an example of that? Well, I think the best examples are actually provided by patients who have lung cancer. So 30 years ago, we used to know that lung cancer was a single disease. What we now know is that when a patient's diagnosed with lung cancer, the standard treatment is to actually take that lung cancer biopsy, look at the genetics, and then to put it in different buckets based on their genetic alterations. So there might be an alteration of EGFR or an alteration of ALK. The names aren't important, but these are two different genetic changes that are present that have treatments that are very different because there's drugs that target those two separate alterations in the cancer. Okay. And so once uh, the DNA sequencing became common and, and was a, you could do it, that's how you developed the, tar- the targets to go after that you just mentioned. That's, that's okay. Yeah. And what's happened since this point in time is that now, you know, there's clinical trials or new experiments that are out there that don't really think about cancers as a specific name. It's not breast cancer or lung cancer or ovarian cancer. This now might be patients that have a mutation in the gene BRCA are now eligible for a specific drug that targets that BRCA change in whichever cancer that arose in. So the BRCA is the breast cancer G, uh, mutation. That's correct. And now there's drugs or, or chemo, is it chemotherapy? Is that the right way to say drugs or? Well, I think that that's exactly right, is that the drugs that are used are still chemotherapy because it's a chemical that treats cancer. But instead of intravenous medications, very often these could be oral medications. So patients very often come in and say, you know, I've got a friend who's taking a pill and her cancer went away. Those are very often targeted therapies that are specific to that patient, uh, that patient's cancer, and very often are oral medications. So how does that work? So you know what the, the, the mutation that caused the lung cancer, the breast cancer, and then you have a targeted therapy for that. What, what actually happens in the body? Well, in the body, it depends upon the mechanism of how that drug works. Sometimes there's things called antibodies. Um, Antibodies are things that are uh, basically an artificial immune system that finds that abnormal change in that cancer and targets it, attacks it, and kills it. So that's one mechanism. The other mechanism is that there are small molecules that basically disrupt or uh, inactivate something that leads to acceleration of cancer growth. Okay. And and so now there are, I don't even know, like uh, dozens or more different kinds, types of targeted drugs? There are more than dozens of targeted okay. drugs. I mean, it, the number that are coming onto the market um, on a weekly, monthly basis are quite shocking. So there's a number of drugs that are within a specific, uh, that target a specific mutation, but then there's many, many mutations that are targeted as well. So there are literally hundreds of targeted therapies for cancers. So this is sort of the start of individualized cancer care, the the concept of no routine cancer that we're going to look at what's specifically causing your cancer and come up with a treatment for that exact problem. That's exactly how you need to think about it. So the no routine cancer mantra that we have at the James is exactly because of the knowledge of the genetic basis of cancer and the ability to treat patients in a targeted fashion that's specific to their disease. And what typically happens is is that by virtue of treating um, the patient's genetics is that you're able to identify the right patients and treat them with the right medication at the right time. 
And what this is translated to, as we talked about earlier, is a significant increase in the number of patients that are living long-term um, with cancer diagnoses. So what comes after targeted therapy? Well, in many ways, the next step is called immunotherapy, and that's almost taking a step backwards away from targeted therapy because it's going back to the general treatment of the body of cancer. And so um, immunotherapy, uh, breaking it down again, is leveraging the body's native immune system. So we all have immunity and immune systems. Think about childhood vaccinations. Um, You can vaccinate a child to boost their immunity against a specific virus, for example, um, or some bacteria as well. So against we, polio, the measles. Absolutely. Yeah. Polio, measles, meningitis are traditional vaccinations that we think about. And so we can artificially boost an immune system to help us fight something that shouldn't be there. What's fascinating is that cancer is something which our bodies should recognize as foreign because it shouldn't be there. And so if our immune systems were working perfectly, we would recognize cancer as foreign and our immune systems would attack it. But what's really interesting about cancer is that it developed an ability to basically hide from the immune system. So if the immune system isn't able to recognize cancer as foreign, then it lets it exist in the body without killing it. And so what immunotherapy is, is doing something to the body's immune system, either by artificially enhancing it with a vaccination or by providing a virus, for example, that might attack something and boost immunity. But most commonly what we think about is the process of actually making the cancer cells visible to our body's immune system, and that is modern immunotherapy. And we've seen some remarkable responses in patients that are susceptible to immunotherapy drugs who had diseases which were not ever thought to be curable five years ago, now being cured of their disease. So how does that actually work? Like what happens in these cancer cells that first that makes that allows them to hide from the immune system and then what changes that makes them visible to the immune system so it can then go and attack it it's a really complicated biochemical <laughs> okay. system the immune system so i i uh my strength is not in biochemistry <laughs> nor in immunology but the basic principle is that there's something in the cancer cells the markers on the surface that basically make it invisible to uh, the cancer cells so many of these targeted therapies do something to basically block that thing that makes the cancer invisible. It basically gums it up, and all of a sudden it becomes recognizable by the body's immune system. So that's one strategy. The other strategies that we talked about are things that might uh, lead to vaccination uh, that makes the immune system hyperactive against that specific change in a cancer. Okay, so now we've gone from surgery to radiation to targeted therapies to immunotherapy. And as you've mentioned, that's... Uh, saving lots of lives and increasing the percentage of people who live five years or longer. So I'm assuming that there's things going on now that I've not heard of that that people at the James and elsewhere are working on. They're going to really push it further. What what are these next big breakthroughs? You know, I think when you consider all of those modalities of treatment together, the general next steps are almost all the same, which is what can we do to maximize the chance of cure and to minimize the chance of harming the patient in the process. So in surgery, for example, things that are being done through smaller incisions with faster recoveries and less side effects is a really important component, thinking about new technologies like robotic surgery that have actually accomplished this already. When you think about radiation techniques, we talked a little bit about you know using computer simulation or imaging to really guide where the radiation is applied. That's a process by which we can use, for example, proton therapy, uh, a new technology that's going to be present 
at the James within the next five years to be able to really deliver the most effective doses to minimize side effects in brain tumors, for example, is a very important next area of research and clinical application. When it comes to chemotherapy, whether it is traditional chemotherapy, targeted therapies, or immunotherapies, some of the big steps we're taking is looking at the combination of these things together. Because we know that very often cancer cells are able to outsmart the chemotherapy. And so if you give one specific type of treatment, any of those three we talked about, very often the cancers find some way to evade being killed by that modality. So if then you kind of combine different strategies together, traditional chemotherapy plus immunotherapy or immunotherapy plus radiation therapy, the hope is those cancer cells can't outsmart the ability to be treated, which would lead to patients being more commonly cured. And it sounds like the bottom line of all this is research is what fuels this this battle. Absolutely. And when you look at the progress that's been made over the last 50, 100, thousands of years, this is all because of research. And so uh, in the last 10 years, the progress that's been made has been truly remarkable. And this would not have been possible without patients that are being enrolled in clinical trials and without translational and basic science research that's being done to really being able to better understand what are the right treatments uh, and having the right treatments done with the fewest side effects as well. You know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. And so when I thought back in the time that I started my career, I would have never believed that we would be to the point where we are now in 2019. And so recognizing the progress that's been made in that near 20-year career, thinking about where we're going to go in the future is truly inspirational. And I think that that's what keeps me going and that's what keeps most of us going is the ultimate goal of curing more patients and having them live longer lives and better quality of lives. That's a great goal and and keep up all the great work that you and everyone else at the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center is doing. Thanks, Steve. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.